find myself as more of a perfectionist in certain areas of my life and then not in area other areas and yeah. i'm wondering what's up with that well i think perfectionism is definitely a context dependent thing hey friend it's david nabinsky here in brooklyn here at the portfolio career podcast we help you take ownership of your career and design a life that you want to live Today's conversation is with Catherine Morgan Schaffler. Catherine is the author of a book called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. You may remember Catherine from episode 261 of the podcast. Uh, so check out that episode after you're done listening to this one. Like that one, this episode was recorded live in front of an audience of about 20 people in Brooklyn. I call these episodes and events podcast mixers. In this episode, you'll learn about creativity and perfectionism, how Catherine wants us to reframe the common view on perfectionism, personal stories, experiences, and so much more. This episode with notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter that I send out every other Sunday called Portfolio Career. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Catherine. So, uh... How to begin? Um, I guess I want to make this podcast perfect. Uh, um, let's do it. <laughs> uh, what when I say that I like want to make this this podcast perfect or this event perfect? Like, what do you think is kind of like coming up for me, or what? Um, it's a good kind of- question because I think a lot of people hear the word perfectionist and we don't really know what to do with that. There's no clinical definition of perfectionist or perfectionism. And I think we really oversimplify it. Like when people say, I'm such a perfectionist, for years I was so curious. Like, what do you mean by that? Because I know what you don't mean is like the colloquial definition of being a perfectionist, which is like, I expect things to be perfect all the time. I want the way I look to be perfect and the weather to be perfect. And I want to say all the perfect things. And I want to have the perfect job and I want to have the perfect timeline. That's not real perfectionism. That's like a one inch deep, shallow version of what we think perfectionism is. I think perfectionism, and when you say, I want this podcast to be perfect, maybe, and I could be wrong, what you mean is like, I want to be present. Mm. I want to be whole. I don't want to have this night go by and feel like I would change a thing. Mm. And that's what real perfection is. That's what people mean when they say like, oh, it was perfect. They're not talking about flawlessness. They're talking about a sense of wholeness that they're tapped into. And if you go back to the Latin root of perfection, you get per facere, completely done. So when we describe something as perfect, we're not saying it's flawless. We're saying it's whole. Like I wouldn't add a thing, right? That's why we say like, that person's a perfect stranger. We're not like, they were a flawless stranger. And, just, and <laughs> you know, it's like we, we miss that when we describe ourselves as perfectionist and go to the one inch deep version. That's not really um, true, you know? Okay. Uh, so try to be more present and enjoy this, enjoy this moment um, and not focus on kind of the outcome as much. Is that what I'm hearing? Or? Yeah, I think it's an internal thing, right? If you're like, you know, you are whole already, you're already perfect just because you're a human being alive in the world. Like, 
when we really accept perfection in kids, in nature, in art, you know, if you think of someone you really, really love or even just like and you think of the sound of their laughter, zero people are like, it's almost perfect if they would just like roll the giggle on the end. It's like, oh, it's perfect. You know, like you already are perfect. I really don't like this message that gets particularly given to women of like, you are enough. It's like, what? What does that mean? And then I don't look at my six-year-old daughter and I'm like, you're enough, honey. I'm like, you're perfect, Mm. you know? And we are afraid to call ourselves perfect, particularly as women, because it's like, what if we are completely okay and we don't need to do one more thing before we can be ready to show up? And what if like you're already perfect and if you just let that wholeness inside of yourself be animated in this conversation, in whatever you're doing before and after, like what if that is what you're after? You know, when we get tripped up is when we like seek out perfection externally and are like, I got to sound smart. (laughs) I got to be charming and funny and all this stuff. And it's like in doing that, we just give up all of our power to the idea of like, I'm going to control the way this audience takes me in. I'm going to control how many listeners I get because of this podcast, all that stuff. You know, it doesn't work like that. So just let it go. Just, just be here and take a deep breath and just have some fun. Um, so this is interesting because I'm also, I'm curious about your relation, uh, how you think about the relationship between perfectionism and creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, was there a follow-up or you just... <laughs> uh, I mean, there doesn't have to be because that's a, that's a mouthful in itself, right? I, I have lots of thoughts. Um, but yeah, I think whenever we're creating, we're taking something that doesn't exist and making it alive in the world. So it changes. And when you have something that's amorphous, like an idea or a vision of something and you kind of bring it back down to earth, it feels like you're making it smaller, like you're reducing it. And that reduction, if you're not used to doing that, feels like you're breaking it, like you're taking a baseball bat to something you love. And you're like, this isn't how it sounded in my head, or this isn't the way my relationship is supposed to look, or this isn't, you know, this imaginary thing. And so I think, you know, I don't know if everyone here knows that this book is not about how to not be a perfectionist. It's about how to be all of who you are and that perfectionism is a power. And like any power, it has a dichotomous nature, right? You can use it for constructive ways and you can use it for destructive ways, just like love or art or wealth. You know, like wealth can be philanthropic or really exploitative. Art can add beauty or it can objectify. Love can be like incredible life-changing and also have really abusive iterations so perfectionism is the same way any power is the same way and there are five types of perfectionists as I've seen them in my work and the procrastinator perfectionist I think would most relate to perfectionism in art Mm. which is like I want the start of this to be perfect so I'm not ready yet I can't show anybody. I can't even write it down for myself maybe sometimes. Um, So I think it can absolutely get in the way if you're not managing it constructively. And I also think the energy of the perfectionist can fuel so much creativity in the most beautiful way because perfectionists are 
are chasing something that's not real. They're chasing an ideal. And like, that's what art is. It's like the bridge between reality and an ideal. The, the art is the offering of that. So I think, you know, perfectionists and artists, I don't know if, if you can be one without being the other, really. The reason why I bring this up is my most recent Substack was called Living and Loving a Boring Life. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that one. It was a good one. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, um, but like I, yeah, so, so that one got the most kind of probably feedback I've ever gotten. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm wondering, like I was probably the most like open in that. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, why, like, is that because I didn't care about that post as much? Was I, like, not being a perfectionist in that post? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to say, like, I'm boring and, like, I like it. And then I'm well, just I'm cu- really curious, like, what was the experience of writing it like for you? Did you write it quickly? Did you write it over a million times? Did you like what you wrote more than other things that you've written? I started on a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, it started on a plane. Uh, and then it started on my notes app and mm-hmm. I like literally actually started, does anybody else like write on their notes app? Yeah. Can I just tell you if, yeah. if anyone reads my notes app, <laughs> game over for me. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen, but anyway, please continue. Um, okay. I'm curious about that. But <laughs> if you want to read it on this podcast, you can. Um, but, um, yeah. So then I just like, I think I kind of just drafted it. Usually I like draft the ideas, but I think I actually like drafted this post a lot more on the plane because I didn't like couldn't pull my computer out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then I put it into Substack, and then I published it, and I was like, well, we'll see where this goes. Did you uh, feel the same about it as you felt about other stuff? I felt like I when I I felt like. St- someone's going to respond to this. Right? Like, yeah. I felt like I would put myself out there more. Yeah, and it was a little longer than your ones you. are nor- you. normally are. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I was like, I just called myself boring. I talked about this. <laughs> Spotify called me a hopeless romantic. And <laughs> I called myself boring and Spotify calls me a hopeless romantic. Uh, people are probably going to unsubscribe to this. <laughs> and, and so I was I'm curious as to like, yeah. yeah, why am I being a perfectionist in the in other editions, but then in this one I'm not, and then therefore, like, that's what people relate to more? I mean, I think maybe you are. I mean, we, you, we have to figure out what perfectionist means to us when we say that. And you don't have to, you know, handcuff yourself to a definition. You can't be like, now I'm only going to speak about it in a positive context, or, you know, it can be fluid, that's fine. But I think in this moment, like, if you were, if you were feeling really present, honest, authentic, that's how it read to me. I've also heard people say that writing on planes, they can access something that they just can't access, which I don't relate to. I need to be like in a cubby with no distractions, um, like before dawn to have any hope of writing anything. But it sounds like you gave a whole offering of yourself. Mm. And that's what people responded to. And were like, this is perfect. Not because like it was grammatically correct, or because you had, you know, I didn't get an MFA or anything, so I don't know the right, like, writer jargon. But whatever, the structure wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything that had to do with that. It was just you, mm. you know? And God, how refreshing when people can cut through all the din and noise of 
just how much we all, even when we're in a well-intended space, like how much pretense we all carry just because we can't help being in, in a culture that like demands it of us so often. Mm-hmm. Thanks for reading the mm-hmm. reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also curious about, like I find myself being a perfectionist or a more perf- and I'm going to get those wrong, but I find myself as more of a perfectionist in certain areas of my life and then not in area, other areas. And yeah. I'm wondering what's up with that. Well, I think perfectionism is definitely a context-dependent thing. Um, you can be, like, I, one of the archetypes in the book is a messy perfectionist, and those are people who are, like, uh, the counterpart to the procrastinator perfectionist. They can start a million things. They're, like, what I like to call start happy, and they are, I would say they breeze through the anxiety of a new beginning, but they don't even experience it as anxiety. It's like romanticized. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to cast a wide net into the world and just like see what happens. And then they hit the inevitable tedium of the middle of the process. And all the kind of romanticism dust settles and they're like, what do you mean? I have to file a license for this, like PLLC. And they're just deflated. And they've also, in all of their enthusiasm, said yes to a lot of things. And they're wearing themselves too thin to actually commit to any of them. So they end up not completing anything and that spurs this false narrative of like no one takes me seriously like I'm not disciplined enough I just can't get my shit together enough I just da 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 and I forgot your original question but (laughs) (laughs) Um, well you you mentioned messy perfectionist oh the context thing yes but uh correct me if I'm wrong but you're more likely a messy perfectionist yes and so what does that kind of look like for you it looks like getting support in the middle Right. So these types are not to be like, identify who you are and then don't be that or be less of that. I really don't like that directive in personal development. It's like, let's identify our strengths and weaknesses. And instead of trying to churn our weaknesses into strengths so that we can be good at everything, which is not possible, let's figure out what our weaknesses are so that we understand who to go to for help. You know, when we need to do something or get something off the ground or like get support, the and the, the question is often like not what should we do? It's not a what, it's a who. It's like who can help me? And who knows how to do this and who does this so easily that they could do it in their sleep? Like so you could be for example a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating. And really love like the first date, the second date, the third date. I have friends that are like, get me away from anything before six months in. I hate it. It's awful. (laughs) And if you're a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating, um, you can also go to work and be like an intense perfectionist and really focused on work because it's a different context. And so a different part of you is coming out, you know, so... um, I get help a lot from classic perfectionists who are way, every perfectionist has pros and cons. Classic perfectionists just naturally infuse structure into everywhere they go. And so it's like timelines, you know, things that aren't top of mind to me all the time, as my editor will tell you. And um, so, yeah, what's, what's an example of how a classic perfectionist has helped you recently? So... 
Um, in decorating my apartment, for example, I want to get everything. Like, it's all beautiful, and I love decorating. And I like wild wallpaper, and I like this, and I like that. And if my partner, whom I live with, wasn't a classic perfectionist, um, I always say that our, if he decorated alone, it would look like American Psycho. <laughs> and if I decorated alone, it would look like tacky paradise something. I don't know what. Um, but My pants. <laughs> but imagine your pants everywhere. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, that kind of stuff where it's a complimentary connection with friends and um, work styles and everything. You know, we're not here to be good at everything. We're here to say, I'm good at this. Do you need help with that? Because I can do it in 10 minutes. And we're also here to say, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Because you could do it in 10 minutes. Okay. So, and there, are there any other examples of how, like, you've, like, how perfectionism shows up in, like, your world? Yeah. Well, I, I spent a long time in my life wanting to be perfectly liked. You know, not, not just perfectly liked in a superficial way, but, like, perfectly understood I saw this like meme thing once that was just like a giant book that was 900 pages and it was like what I was going to say. <laughs> That's how I feel or felt so often of to have the courage to be disliked is hard, I think. It's hard for me anyway, or it was hard. Um, and then I think after a certain point, you just become accustomed to like understanding the trade that you make when you are are like doing something that's maybe inauthentic to yourself in order to like please or placate someone around you out of love, you know, or out of something good in you. But it just like, it just brews um, resentment. And like resentment is such a barrier to connection. It's such a barrier to joy. It's a barrier to every good thing. Um, and it's also a barrier to like accountability because we use resentment as a bid for validation for others. It's like, can't you see how much you messed up? I'm, I'm so resentful of you. And we are like doing the cold shoulder or silent treatment or whatever to communicate to people very ineffectively that it's their job to fix whatever happened. And everything in our life, every experience is always our responsibility to handle, you know? And so I think Parisian perfectionism, which is what I call it, when you wanna be perfectly liked or perfectly understood or perfectly like others, um, used to come up for me a lot. Then in the pandemic, it just like, I just let the ship sink, really. And now it's more messy. And a little bit intense sometimes, <laughs> just for kicks, <laughs> just for kicks. Um, and wh what's the intense perfectionist? What are those people? So like? intense perfectionist really focused on the outcome. So it's like the pros of this person are they do have razor sharp focus. We all know these people like you give them something, they will get it done. But sometimes the means don't justify the ends. And so they're getting it done like in a way that's sacrificing their own well-being or the well-being of people around them. And it's like, great, you you met all of your goals, but half of your team is going to quit. Or like, good job creating the perfect like family get-together. Nobody's saying anything honest at this table because nobody's comfortable because there's so much 
expectation and tension in the room because you need it to be a certain way. And so that's kind of like, I have a little 10% of that that just yeah. comes out to play sometimes. 10%. Yeah. Yeah. But the yeah. pros are also like, if you're managing it again, this is all mental health is this way. There's no, like someone asked about anxiety earlier. You know, I like to think of anxiety as like activation anxiety. Right. Mm. Um, and, and it's not an immediately bad thing. Like a lot of, um, drugs for depression, like anxiety is a side effect because you need to be stirred sometimes in like a physiological way in order to get your body and mind in sync with like, we are moving through this moment, literally. And anxiety will like wake you up in the morning sometimes. And sometimes it'll wake you up in the middle of the night. And it's like, you can't, we can't perfectly construct this stuff so that it only shows up when it's convenient for us. And I'm not trying to say anxiety is like a wonderful thing because it can also be really painful when it gets out of control. But I like, I like a little buzzing sometimes and I don't, don't think we have a real lexicon for this stuff. It's very black and white and it's like all on a spectrum. Mental health is all on a spectrum. Nobody's healthy or unhealthy. It's like, we're all, you know, um, floating, soaring, dipping, diving, coasting, like we're all just taking turns doing that. And the point of mental health is not to be like, how do I figure out how to just soar? Cause that's all I want to do in this season. Or how do I figure out how to just coast? It's like, how do I figure out how to be connected so that I feel like a real human being? Yeah. Like mental health is about connection. It's not about finding out which disorder you have and then uh, getting rid of it. Like that's not yeah. what it's about. Um, I got one more question before, uh, hopefully some questions from people here. Um, I think a lot of the book is around and your work is around like this, this concept of like letting go of control mm -hmm. and that relationship between control and perfectionism. And, um, and it seems like you wrote this book because of, you know, these, these patterns that you saw through your work. Yeah. Um, but also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what, there's like that one quote, not in the book, but it's like, if you're uh, a healthy person wants a hundred things and then when you're sick, you want like one thing. Mm -hmm. um, if you feel comfortable talking about it, how does like your prior sickness mm -hmm. uh, connect to uh, perfectionism and control? Yeah, so I had my life on a very clear track, right? It was like, move to New York, go to the best schools, you know, start a practice, get your license as early as possible, start a practice as early as possible, find a relationship, get married, have a child, all the things. Anybody else relate to that? <laughs> <laughs> and I was operating on this timeline where I didn't even realize I was doing it. I just thought I was being really disciplined. And I just thought I was, I don't know what I thought I was doing. I was so busy. I love to be... I don't love to be busy anymore, but I loved to be busy then. And there were so many great opportunities like working at Google and, you know, writing for all these places. And, and it, it, like so many times we get presented with something and before we ask ourselves, like, what do I actually want? Like, what do I need right now? We're like, okay, how cool or great is this opportunity? And how likely is it to come by again? You know, instead of like coming from an internal place. 
And so when I was 33, I was married a year, which my partner and I talk about this all the time. Like neither of us necessarily wants to get married. Mm. We're just like, I guess we should get married. And then I felt like, I guess you should be proposing because we're 30 now. And it was so silly. And um, we've like reconstructed our marriage several times over in a way that feels really good. But that's an example of like just being on a timeline, you know, where you're not necessarily conscious. Anyway, so I had lined up my practice, was was fully booked all the time. I had a practice on Wall Street and I was volunteering and I had my two dogs and I was married. I wasn't married, you know, more than a year. And um, I got diagnosed with cancer that was highly treatable. Um, I lost a pregnancy and there was no time to freeze my eggs. And I remember buying this like spiral notebook at Dwayne Reed so that I could take all these notes at the doctor's appointments because I, I sometimes get distracted at those things and I, I, it just came out of nowhere. And I had written one question at the top, like this like weird homework assignment I, uh, that I wanted to make sure I asked. And the question that I wrote at the top was, do I have time to freeze my eggs? And the doctor just bluntly said no. And I remember not writing anything else in that notebook and just throwing it into the trash uh, when I left that doctor's appointment. And so I just like in two weeks had lost all this stuff that I very painstakingly constructed, like this perfect setup. And I did chemotherapy for six months. Um, Again, highly treatable, like 95% treatment rate, but I lost my hair. And that was really one of the hardest parts. I know that probably sounds really superficial, but it was like everything was invisible to other people until then. And that was like, oh my God, this is so visible. I had, I wore a wig. I didn't feel like myself. And so I just lost so much control and I never realized how much I over-indexed on control until I lost so much of it. And I hate the cliche-ness of it because it is so cliche, but it also happens to be true. That's what happened. So anyway, we did IVF for a really long time, ended up having a really sweet baby girl, happy ending, or happy middle anyway, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thanks for asking. Thanks for sharing. Um, Questions? Yeah, Bethany. Thank you so much for being here. I read your book a year ago and it really changed my view of perfectionism, which I had thought for many, many years was something that was somehow taught to me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had children and I started to notice my three-year-old would only get mad when things like the perfectly lined up order of crayons slid off the page of the folded part of the coloring book and then she would have like a meltdown or the Lego blocks weren't stacking up in just the right way. And it made me really realize, oh, maybe perfectionism is, or or this this compulsion to order is something we are just born with in some way. And I'm curious what your sort of thought is on like where this sort of derives from and how like order kind of relates to just like the natural human nature? Yeah, it's a great question. I think with kids, parents are often alarmed, um, unnecessarily so, like 98% of the time with disproportionate reactions to stuff. I mean, the reality is kids do not know 
nor is it developmentally appropriate for them to know how to regulate their feelings, which meaning like how to not let the feelings they feel overtake their brain and bodies. You know, kids are dysregulated all the time. They're just like little dysregulated humans walking around. Like that's why people say like, if you look at toddlers, they're like drunk people, you know, just like (laughs) screaming one second, laughing at something, falling on the floor. Like that's how it's supposed to go. Um, And I do think that we like order in the world. And some of us find order in the the physicality of things. Um, And there's something very soothing and I think healthy about that. Some of us find order in like understanding that our relational needs are like met by, you know, I have this great friend who I can always talk to about my artistic stuff or this person is like everything to me. And this person is just a sexual partner and this person is whatever. And like organizing ourselves relationally, other people like order, um, in all kinds of different expressions in the way that they dress or the books that they read or, you know, I think like I like to think of order in a really elastic way. Hey. Hi. Um, so at the beginning you were sharing about how like everyone individually is perfect. And then as I was hearing you talk, you were talking a lot about the imperfection in the world and that perfectionism in the external feels a little bit like unattainable. Mm-hmm. And to me, like I'm having trouble grappling with like the fact that us individually are perfect, but like our external world just needs to be accepted as imperfect. Like how do you grapple with that contrast? Because I just want to say everything is imperfect, including myself. And I'm imperfect. I don't even want to say imperfectly perfect, but, um, yeah, um, I get what you're saying. And you know what, um, what is your name? Rachel. Rachel. If that works for you, then that, that can be true. Like both things can be true. And five more things in addition to that, that contravene each other can also be true. So I'm not here to get anyone to say, if you don't walk out of David's door saying, I am perfect, then you're not thinking the right way. Like I don't think there's necessarily a right way to think, but I do think that the way that you construct meaning around your identity needs to be shaped around something that is already innate and whole in you and needs to be based on your existence. Meaning like I am a human being and so I am worthy of love, connection, joy, dignity, and freedom. To me, those five things are non-negotiable. You don't earn your way to freedom as a human being. You don't earn your way to love because you're really funny when, like, you're, or you're really smart or whatever. So it doesn't have to be true for everybody. But those five things, to me, you're worthy of. You're already whole. You're already a, a complete human being. And that's how I think of perfect. If it doesn't feel right for you, then you don't have to think of it that way. And I get it too. Like I I wrote this book and I was like, I'm not going to handcuff myself to the idea that control is always bad and power is always the upgrade or that nobody's ever imperfect. And now I'm going to say people are perfect. That's like this twisted mutation of perfectionism against perfectionism. Like it's uh, very meta, you know, it's like, okay, so you, you think everything's imperfect and it's all worth trying anyway. And I think that's beautiful.
Um, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, I'm actually really curious when I hear the word losing control, mm -hmm. um, I think quite a bit about kind of like letting go. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of to me brings into mind spirituality and spiritual practices. Yeah. I'm curious if you've done any sort of studies around the relationship between perfectionism and spirituality. And I'd also be curious to hear your relationship to perfectionism through spirituality, if you have this sort of practice. I do. I do. So I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, so in grad school, I found it really strange that in our counseling program at Columbia, there wasn't really, I mean, there is now a Dr. Lisa Miller's, Miller is there um, who talks about the connection between psychotherapy and spirituality, but there wasn't really a place of like, how do we, how do we approach this within ourselves and our clients? Um, I think of myself as deeply spiritual. I think of God as presence spirituality as access to presence and religion as instruction on access to presence. And I think some people really like and are comforted by the instruction manual. And some people like to build the furniture themselves. And some people are like, how ridiculous that there are even any, you know, like, and, and so to me, like being present is so holy, like, Every moment is a holy moment if I'm paying attention. And I'm not paying attention all the time. Um, but does that answer your question? Yeah, a lot of what I'm hearing from you is really about kind of both presence and acceptance. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, if I can ask a quick follow-up question. Yeah. I'm curious why you chose to focus on this word perfectionism versus something like acceptance or presence Because I don't think acceptance is enthusiastic enough. You know, like, I don't want to be accepted. I want to be embraced, celebrated, enjoyed. I want to be all that stuff. And I want to treat other people that way, too. Like, I accept that every time I go to the doctor, I get a lab bill, like, a month later that is extra payment that I forgot I had to pay. Like, that's what I accept. To, but I don't want to accept this, like invisible energy and power that I think everyone carries with them into the room that's so beautiful and makes the world go round and kind of it should be celebrated, you know? So like the losing control part, um, I thought that was a fun way to say like, what, ha what, what do you think would happen if you lost control? Like how much do you trust yourself to not, hold on tight and grip onto stuff. Um, there's also like a dark clinical history of people pathologizing women and people of color and like controlling them through diagnoses and different things like that that I address in the book. Um, and so that's where the like losing control of like losing that idea um, of this cardboard cutout version of power that's so petty and myopic and like incomparable. You mentioned earlier about yourself being per perfectionist, about navigating privacy and authenticity. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what's showing up in your life that makes you think that there might be a trade-off between those two? Well, I think there's a trade-off between everything. And if we don't accept that there's a trade-off, we kind of get sucked into like the maladaptive kind of perfectionism where I'm like, where it's like, I'm going to life hack this so there's no trade-off. And it's like, we all make choices and those choices help us and hurt us sometimes. And 
there's no way of knowing how the world around us that changes is going to interact with those choices. So it's not like you can be like, oh, here are the choices that match and then just have that prescriptive, like this is who I am now vibe for like an indefinite amount of time. And I think that the trade-off that I see that I am okay with is like trust is important to me. You know, I'm not just going to tell anybody stuff, you know, like you have to earn that. And I expect to earn your trust. And so beyond the like trust building, I just like privacy. I think privacy is like really luxurious. I'm not trying to like post everything I do. I'm not trying to like advertise my life. It feels weird to me to do that. Um, And some people I know experience that as closed off. So the trade-off is like, friends who might say how could you not tell me or like when I got sick like I didn't want to talk to anybody about that because it just felt really personal I could count on one hand how many people knew I got I was sick until I lost my hair and like it can be hurtful because people are like you're not letting me into your life and I get that right but at the same time I'm like it's not just like an instantaneous I'm gonna you know I don't believe people are entitled to be privy to like everything about your life instantaneously too, you know? I don't know if that answers your question because as I said, I'm like struggling with the balance of it or, or figuring out like how to work that. Um, before you let people know where to s- follow up, um, stay in touch, learn more about the book. Um, any parting thoughts? Um, let me think about that for a moment. Well, would it ruin it if I talked about the last page of the book? No. (laughs) I'll talk about it generally, right? So, like, I just say this thing at the end, which is, like, just remember that you'll forget. You're going to forget all the things you know. Like, I say in the book, like, I'm going to forget everything in this book, and I wrote the damn thing. Like, it's okay. It's okay. Like, we have to give ourselves grace. We have to give ourselves grace compassion because the one thing that I would say that I learned in all of these years that if I could wave a magic wand and get anyone to know it is that punishment doesn't work like being critical lacerating ourselves even just like like when I worked in a in a rehab um in in Brooklyn whenever someone would relapse it they would always know what they needed they'd be like I just need a nourishing meal and a hot bath And I just need that so bad. But they'd be like, but I already fucked up. So I'm just going to go out and drink because what's the point? Like, I don't deserve it. It's like the last thing that we think we need or deserve when we're hurting or we made a mistake is to take good care of ourselves and give us the thing that would feel good. And that's the only way back. You know, there's no other way back. Self-compassion is not optional. If you want to heal and grow, you have to learn it. So I would say that there's a whole um, distinction between the difference between punishment and accountability, natural consequences, rehabilitation, and um, that understanding those differences can really help give the lighthouse of language to be like, oh, I'm punishing myself right now. What I mean to be doing is, is disciplining myself, which are two totally different things.
All right. <laughs> uh, and Instagram, website, book? Uh, my website is my name, KatherineMorganShaffler.com. I'm on Instagram at KatherineMorganShaffler.com. Those are pretty much the two places that I hang out. Let's give it up for Catherine. Thank you. Hey, friend. Thank you for listening to this Portfolio Career Podcast episode. I would love to hear what you learned or took away from this episode. I hope you find me, David Nabinsky, on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Also, if you want the best insights from the podcast and to hear my learnings, please subscribe to my Portfolio Career Substack newsletter that I send out every two weeks. You can find that on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com slash newsletter. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.